Welcome into a Salt City Hoops podcast. It has been a while, but we're dusting off the uh, old podcasting equipment here because the Jazz are locked in a battle with the LA Clippers in a series that currently stands 2-2 with a pivotal tie-breaking Game 5 coming up tomorrow in Salt Lake City. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about where the series is overall. We're even going to talk about uh, some breaking news on the awards front. And to do all of that, this guy over here is Dan Clayton. On the other side is Ken Clayton. And you, yes, you, my friend in the listening audience, are smack dab in the middle of what our dear friend Marin calls a brother sandwich because Ken and Dan, <laughs> I thought you'd like that, yeah. because uh, the Clayton brothers are going are gonna to break it down here you for in the latest installment of the Salt City Hoops podcast. Ken, how's, how's the other end of the sandwich going? Hey, this this end is uh, fresh and a little toasted here in Phoenix, but I think that's the same on your end too. As long as we oh. get, in, get in some weather jokes here. Oh yeah, there's no there's no um, yeah there's there's no like Phoenix deprecating stuff I can say today because we're just as hot on this end. Yeah, um, almost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, once it's three digits, do you really notice the difference? And this is where you say, "Yeah, I do," but. <laughs> But hey, it's a dry heat, right? That's, yeah. that's not at all comforting. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a dry heat. It's also a, uh, uh, a series that's heating up. How's that for segue, podcast huh. segue 101? Um, yeah, 2-2. Two, two. I mean, um, this, is, this is spicy. This is, what, this is what the playoffs is all about. The Jazz are are locked in a, in a tight series against another great team. And, um, you know, I don't know, exciting stuff. How are you, how are you feeling overall about the, about the series at this point? Well, it shouldn't be a huge surprise, although, you know, my eyes got a little big, like everybody's going off to going off to LA up to, Oh, thinking, you know, you get a little greedy. You want to get that, you want to get that one win in LA and make this easy, it was always probably a little bit of a pipe dream to think you could, or, or at least, or certainly not a given. Let's put it that way. Um, so coming back two two, uh, you know, as we say, the uh, everybody plays a little better at home, worse on the road. Certainly, role players, and we've seen that play out both directions. I think, and so I think we're about where maybe we should have expected we'd be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, look, you know, are the Jazz are the jazz capable in an alternate universe of, of going down and splitting the two LA games? Like, absolutely. Right. They've, we've seen them go on the road and beat good teams before. Um, It's also not something you can certainly count on. And I I think the Clippers in order to avoid the the three Oh hole, they played with such an urgency in game three that we hadn't really seen before out of them that maybe that just sort of like reminded them how they have to play to be at their most dangerous. I don't, I don't know. I don't really necessarily buy into the, to the idea that, um, that, that they just like play casual a lot of the time. I think they're a good team. They know who they are. They're, they're not, they're not a team whose identity is like, we're going to scrap for 48, but they don't need to be that team because of who they are talent wise. Um, But I, but I do also think that like, you know, the same thing happened in their, in their series against Dallas. I think you just sort of, once you remember what it's like to be locked in for 48, I think it's a little easier to access it again. And, and obviously they, they cleaned the Jazz's clock last night again in game four. Yeah, 
kind of the opposite way where, where game three was competitive for a while and they came on at the end. This was the, the mirror image of that where they cleaned the jazz clock early and then it got, you know, semi-interesting for a while, but you know, the jazz never got closer than was it 12 or nine. I don't know. No, they did get to 10. They got to 10 yeah, at okay. one point. Um, and by the way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they got to 10, not a stop. So yeah. like, they had they had an opportunity to get it into single digits and um, and then I can't remember what happened on the first play and then and then it came back at ten again and yeah. that's the play where um, where Rudy stops Kawhi Leonard on two different drives to the basket but then Joe Ingles for some reason fouls Marcus Morris forty feet from the basket in the penalty right. and so then it's. So then it's 12 and then like, it just never, it never feels close again after that. Um, but I mean, Hey, look, I mean, like that's, that's the cost of putting yourself 29 points behind a great team like LA is that then you have to pitch the no hitter to get out of that hole. And obviously, you know, that's, that's a, you know, if you have to play perfect for that long against a team that good, your, your chances aren't great. Right. Certainly not plan A. Yeah. Well, we can um, we can dive more into Game Four. I, I think we have some kind of overall impressions and impressions on that. We also had some breaking news happen this afternoon as we were preparing to podcast, and that's that the Jazz have a player on the All NBA team. Rudy Gobert makes the All NBA third team for what? This is his this is his fourth All NBA selection, right? You think a guy who was about to podcast? No, <clears throat> this is. Um... This is five. This is five. Okay. He made yep. second team one year. Yep. And then didn't make it. And then, uh, and then has made it four years in a row since then. I believe no, no, no. So. This is his fourth. This is his fourth. <laughs> All NBA second team in 2017. That's right. It's one more than the DPOY. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he didn't make either. He didn't make any of the All NBA teams in 2018. But then, but then he has made third team in each of 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, his selection, I would say, not that surprising since this is one of those awards where the NBA still believes in this antiquated notion of basketball positions. So because they have a center spot on the on the ballot, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that the three spots would probably be in this order. Jokic, Embiid, Gobert. That's how it played out. Uh, the player who did not make it is Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, which has caused a little bit of hand-wringing out on Jazz Twitter and I'm sure other places as well. Um, I personally didn't find that to be a big surprise. I think down the stretch, I, I think he was 100% in the discussion and maybe even had an inside track, oh, about April 16th in the morning before the Indiana game. Um, And I think, you know, you missed the last, uh, how many games did it end up being? 19? Again, things we should know, but you know, you, you, uh, yeah, you lose an an edge when you, when you miss the last month of a season. And uh, I, I, I can't feel too upset about that. I'm sure, um, you know, there are reasons I could, but, but I don't personally. Yeah, so the so the guards for the first team were Steph and Luca. Um, you know, Steph who was an MVP candidate, Luca who was probably like a second tier MVP candidate. So hard to feel like Donovan got slighted there. Second team, Damian Lillard and Chris Paul. 
Um, you know, again, we're talking about two perennial all-league guys. I'm not sure that there's that there's an insult inherent in finishing behind those guys. Third team, you've got Bradley Beal and Kyrie Irving. Okay, now you're kind of getting into eye of the beholder territory. Um, you know, Kyrie Irving missed a bunch of games, but when he played, he was really important to, uh, you know, just a historic offensive juggernaut. Bradley Beal scored a boatload of points, but did it on a bad team. Um, you know, you could you could certainly make the argument for the best scorer on the best team in basketball, you know, laying a claim to some of those votes. But then, you know, I think importantly too, Russell Westbrook and James Harden both finished ahead of Donovan in the other guards receiving votes category. So really he, he would have had to leapfrog three of those guys I just named. And those are eight pretty impressive NBA stars that we just talked about. Right. I mean, when you look at that whole list though, I mean, I know I, I, I agree with what you said. Like some guys are, you know, the first team guys aren't debatable, but honestly, depending on how you look at it, you could argue he could be in a discussion <clears throat> with, with a Luca. Um, now Luca's probably going to make first team, maybe a floor of second team. It's just, there is such a crowded group and you haven't even mentioned the other guys who didn't make it a Devin Booker, a Jason Tatum, where there was some weird, uh, I, I assume the way they always make the calculations, but but um, Jason Tatum not making it, also missing out on uh, some uh, higher earning potential in the next right. four or five years. So yeah, there's it's the, the guard position is loaded. I think if you want to get out of that business, do you do you go positionless or less position oriented or something? But you can't change the rules this year at when it's time to vote just because you have a ton of guards who are who are yeah. great picks. Yeah, Jason Tatum this year um, was was listed on the results as a forward. Now I, I understand from Zach Lowe and others that this is a year that they did give voters some flexibility. You could list a guy if if someone like Tatum who has played across multiple positions, you you could list him wherever it was convenient on your ballot. But in terms of how they reported the results he was listed as a forward and got significantly more votes or, or more vote points than donovan mitchell got but yeah you're right in addition to the six guys who made it and russ and james who who out earned donovan in vote points there was devin booker who was right behind donovan and then there was ben simmons trey young and zach Levine. each of those three guys were on one to two ballots um so a pretty wide gap after mitchell and booker so, you know, so I guess you could say, like, look, you know, it's it's not a slight to say that at the current moment, you're pretty firmly a top 10 guard in the NBA. Right. It's just that that's nice and all. But as you were referencing, um, not making this particular year's all NBA team is is costly to Donovan Mitchell in a way that we can that we can dive into, that we can explain to listeners. It, it makes it it makes that ankle turn in the home game against Indiana, the day game in mid April, a pretty costly ankle turn, Ken. Well, yeah. And I mean, I've been thinking about that the way I think of uh, on the, on the day after the anniversary, the th the day I think of uh, Jordan stealing the ball from Carl Malone on June 14th, 1998. Uh, that was a turning point because it was not only going to turning point and affect Donovan Mitchell's wallet, but it was a turning point in the season and we'll see, you know, 
where we land. That's the other discussion back when we get on the basketball court, not in the award ceremony. So let's talk quickly about the money thing. So, so the, what we're referring to is the fact that if Donovan had made all NBA this season, it would have unlocked earning potential that would have determined the starting salary of his coming extension. So this is not a year by year incentive. This is not something that they will review each season. This not making this team or making this team was, uh, was the linchpin that would really make a, a five-year difference in his salary. And the number, Ken, was significant. I, I think you had it or, or between the two of us, we had it. He, he could have earned up to about $195 million on that new extension over five years had he made All-NBA. Instead, he'll make, I think you were saying the number is 163 or something. That's the number I had. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, let me get my soapbox out here. And this started a few years ago when <clears throat> when we started attaching, when the new CBA started attaching maximum salaries or higher maximum salaries to awards that are, let's be honest, very subjective. Yeah. Sometimes involved biased parties. I Let's but scratch sometimes. Go back and edit <laughs> that out. It, they invite by parties and then they and then those become not only I mean, in this case, it didn't matter as far as will the Jazz resign him or not. They already did. So the extension is already signed. Right. But in some negotiations, they end up being uh, it's a guy who doesn't take the extension, wants to go into free agency and it limits what his team can offer him. And so there's a less of a less of an incentive to stay in the in the, uh, in the team where you have the rookie contract. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, like we said, that's, that's costly. Um, it, on the other side of things, it does give the jazz about five to 6 million more per season in operating room under the um, let's, let's say under the apron, it doesn't appear as though the jazz in the immediate future are going to be a salary cap team. So salary cap room doesn't matter, but um, it gives them a little bit more fa- financial flexibility in terms of using their exceptions and still staying under um the luxury tax, if that's their goal, I, I think they'll be a tax team too. But just again, it, it gives them more options in terms of how they can orchestrate things financially. And, and obviously a lot of that depends on whether they keep Mike Conley, who's a free agent this summer, and at what number, because if they are able to retain Mike and if Mike makes anything close to market value, then guess what? The Jazz are going to be operating as a tax team anyway, and it's not going to make a huge difference. But um Every dollar counts, and now Donovan Mitchell is a is a slightly cheaper player for the Jazz for the next five years. But I'm but I'm sure that the way that the Jazz look at these things is I, I you know I'm sure that they like it when their guys get the recognition that they deserve, and I'm I'm sure they would have loved for him to leapfrog, you know Harden, Westbrook, and one of those six guys who made it, um, and he probably will. I think All NBA is definitely in Donovan Mitchell's near future. Right. Yeah. Some, I was having a Twitter discussion earlier uh, with somebody who said it also has to do with not just his pay, but his legacy and getting sure. into the Hall of Fame. And I yeah. said, yeah, he's got plenty of time for that. But this Jason Tatum's only chance to get the payday bump from 163 million to 195 million. So that's the part where I think the current CBA is a little bit, you know, again, using a very subjective and potentially biased metric or not metric award to determine how much a guy can make yeah no it's a bummer it's a bummer that like (laughs) that an ankle turn can cost you 32 million um (laughs) yeah and and by the way it kind of puts 
some of these decisions we're talking about now, I, like I'm not, I don't purport to sit over here and know what's going into the Mike Conley decision or, or, you know, James Harden deciding to play in game five tonight, a decision that looks smart in hindsight because they got a tie breaking win in game five of their series. But, you know, when you, when you talk about these decisions and what goes into deciding whether a player who's somewhat hurt should or shouldn't play, just like stop and remember like the, the vast numbers involved in, in those decisions. And obviously all these guys want to play. It's like, they're all NBA players because they love playing basketball and they're good at playing basketball and they want to do it. But that when you start to realize the ramifications of, you know, getting hurt at the wrong time of your season or the wrong time of your career, um, you know, you understand why agents are involved in those decisions and, and, parents are involved in those decisions and spouses and, and sometimes a player's own medical professionals that, that they've consulted with and then right. team professionals and, and coaching staffs and front office. So like, I, this is just a long way of saying like, these are incredibly complex decisions. And once you realize that, like, it's, it's never just as simple as like, Oh, Donovan wanted to play in the jazz wouldn't let him or Mike wants to play and the Jazz won't let him. I don't think that's how either of those two processes played out or are playing out. But, uh, you know, again, 32, 32 million makes that a pretty damn expensive um, injury. Yeah, and, and go back even a step further when you're talking about, I don't know, decision is maybe the wrong word, although in the, in the moment it was a decision. I mean, the other thing that's going to hurt to the tune of $32 million plus whatever the impact is on the – team season is the play where that happened was not a really yeah. impactful play on a game that was in huge question. It was a near mid court line trying to deflect a ball, blah, blah, blah. It's been a while since I've actually watched it, but yeah, I mean, it was, and again, you don't want to tell there's, there's a jazz legend out there about, because I don't know if it's really true, I won't name names, but one player telling another player, don't dive on the floor, don't play hard. You know, you got to protect yourself. You could be a superstar. And then the other school of thought is the superstars are the ones who dive on the floor, who make the plays, who do what you can do. So you don't want to tell, you never want to tell Donovan, don't try hard. That's part right. of what makes him special. But trying hard in that particular instance was probably a low board and I don't know that the risk was high but certainly whatever the risk was he he came out on the short end of the risk uh yeah. to the tune of however many games he missed and and being slowed a little bit in the when he came back and and now you know seemingly dealing with that ankle still even though he assures us that he's good yeah well let's let's that's a great um pivot point to start talking a little bit more about or, Boom. That's um, what I do. I, I provide pivot points. See, we're, we're great at this segue stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, toward, toward the end of the first half in game two, the Jazz are ahead comfortably. Things are going really well. Donovan has a play where he's guarded by Paul George out front. He kind of jab steps and his right foot, the, the foot that was injured in April, kind of slides out from under him a little bit. I don't know if there was moisture on the floor or if he just planted it wrong. His right foot kind of kind of slides out and you see him visibly wince and then he gets rid of the basketball 
And really since then, Donovan Mitchell has not been the same in this series. Um, the second half, the jazz, it turns out the Jazz had just enough of a lead to absorb a Clipper run in the second half. They trailed briefly, but then um, won game two. And uh, even, even though Donovan Mitchell, even in that second half, already you could tell that there were plays that he didn't want the ball. There were plays that, okay, I'll take the ball, but he, he wasn't really driving as actively. When he did drive, he would kind of drive down the slot as opposed to, you know, trying to turn the corner at, at a certain point and get two feet in the paint. Game three, I think, was an extension of the same thing, just not having that same burst and explosiveness that we're used to seeing out of Donovan Mitchell. And then game four, um, you know, certainly hampered again. You wouldn't know it by looking at his box score. He winds up yeah. with 37 points, five rebounds, and five assists. But, you know, the series looks different, and what the Clippers are doing to the Jazz defensively looks different when you can't just hand the ball to Donovan Mitchell and say, hey, go pierce the defense because you're that special a player. He is, but right now, a lot of what makes him special in that sense of being able to, you know, single-handedly confound a defense just isn't there right now. Yeah. And when it is, because I think at times he can, you can, you know, you can get the boost of adrenaline, you can get past the pain once, but then he doesn't always have that second burst, whether it's on, and I think we've seen that on defense where he'll, you know, the, the, the switch happens, he gets where he needs to be temporarily, but when he needs to rotate, he doesn't have the burst to get to that one. So, you know, it's always easier to work hard on offense too. We all know that, right. You know, yeah. we, all, we all, we can play through the pain if we might score a bucket, but <laughs> Then we drag our drag a gimpy leg around on on defense because we're not quite as excited, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, let's let's be fair to him too and sympathetic. Like part of part of what he appears to be, and I'm not a doctor or an orthopedist or even a sports trainer or anything, but just from watching him, a couple of things that seem to be issues for him right now are starting and stopping, or quickly changing directions, and you know, those are all things that matter in a defensive context. They matter on offense too. And a lot of how he was able to score 82 points in the first two games of the series was through his guile and his unpredictable hurty jerky movements. And, and some of that's not there, but he's, but he's, you know, compensated with unbelievable shot making and with some, you know, clever movements and, and amazing finishes on drives. But, you know, on the defensive end of the court, if you're running towards, one guy to close out a rotation and then suddenly the ball reverses and you've got to run the opposite direction. That's where I'm seeing Don just kind of tap out of, of a lot of plays on yeah. defense. And I think his teammates are, are realizing it and they're trying to help him. They know that he's not like, he's not loafing. He's not being lazy. It's the, it's right. the physical limitation of, of the situation he's in. So I can see his team trying to pick up for those things, but it's just altering the muscle memory just enough that, um, that I do think it has made, um, I do think it has made their defense worse noticeably. Um, now I also don't, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this broadly. Actually, Mark Russell Pereira, one of our great Salt city hoops writers, he asked me this earlier today. So I'll put the question to you. Um, do you think right now in the series, the jazz's problems and you know, let's lose, let's use problems loosely. They're tied two two with a great team, but having lost two games in a row, does that come down mostly in your view to the offensive end of the court or to the defensive end of the court? Where do you see the main issues that have slowed the jazz down after a two Oh start to the series? I would lean. Well, not even lean. I would say defensive. 
because I think their offense feeds enough off their defense that if the defense was there and stronger and and, and able to withstand as it as it did in the first more better in the first two games, that then the offense would get a boost as well. But I think more of the failings are on the defensive end, and uh, that's you know part of that is what we were just talking about with, with Donovan and people trying to do a little more to cover him part of it or other issues that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the defensive end is where uh, they're having more issues um, that are causing the, causing the current woes. And when I say woes, I'm talking about two games, not four games, no series are over yet, or this series is not over yet. Well, that's an interesting answer because I told Mark the opposite. Uh, well, <laughs> so, but, but you know, before. but I think, hey, look, I, I think that that just I think what that shows you is the interconnectedness between offense and defense that we can watch the same game and, and you know, come away with different feelings. The reason I told Mark that I that I see the offense as more concerning is. Um, is partly because partly because the Clippers are elite offensively. So I think mm-hmm. you have to grade the Jazz's defense on a bit of a curve. Um, but mostly, you know, the Jazz have been doing well in the half-court defense in this series, which is, I think, kind of all you can ask of them against a great Clipper team. I think when the Clippers score in transition, that usually is the result of a Jazz possession that has gone awry. And, you know, just for me, I've seen enough of those possessions. And again, like, look, I get it in context. Like, the Clippers are switching and they're swarming. And what that means is that, a lot, of the, a lot of the pet actions, a lot of the pick and roll stuff just isn't going to have the same impact on the defense that it does on a normal night in the regular season. And that means you need guys who can just puncture the defense on their own. Mike Conley is one of those guys. He's not available. Jordan Clarkson is one of those guys. He's not playing particularly smart. Donovan Mitchell is definitely one of those guys, and he's playing on one leg. Right. And so I just haven't seen the same juice or the same force out of their offensive execution and I think that's what's allowing the Clippers um, not only to slow them down, but, uh, but also, like I said, I, I think that's generating a lot, of, a lot of what we would look at as defensive breakdowns. And it's really just because the Clippers are either scoring in, in actual transition or they're just coming down in semi-transition and, you know, attacking some, some, bad, uh, some bad cross matches or things like that. And, um, you know, I think... That, that getting Mike Conley back in this series, if we do see him in game five or game six, or if there's a game seven, that was, I, that's me, why knock, I, that was me knocking. Okay. All right. I didn't know if it was that or if lightning had just struck, you know, there was a desert storm. Um, yeah. I, I think Mike Conley could really impact this series because of the am- amount of times that the jazz have run something dead ended and then just said, well, screw it. We'll improvise. And that, generally speaking, haven't gone well um, or, or it was going well up until the point where Donovan Mitchell, you know, lost one of his legs. Yeah. For all intents and purposes. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, there's a very good argument to me both ways. I wouldn't quite say you're dead wrong on the offensive way, except that we're brothers. So we, if we disagree, we have to go all in. Right. Yeah. Hey, Nikola Jokic says he went that for fun. He still fights with his brothers. Huh. And then, I, and then I saw video of those brothers in that 
that video that surfaced. Uh, it's it's on my it's on my Twitter feed if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about. I would not call fighting those big chunks of Serbian men fun. No. Um, but we 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 engage in a more erudite form of of combat here in the Clayton family. We just debate things like offensive and defensive efficiency. Well, as long as we're debating that, should we move on into the, the, the other questions about rotations and things like that? Yeah. Um, another, another solid A-plus transition, by the way. Um, so, so credit for that. Um, yeah, Maureen, so there, Maureen, let's go back to the more, many years ago, and instead of saying boom, I should say boom bitches. Boom bitches. Where are you at, Costa Cufas? <laughs> um, those were fun times. Actually, that was the that team was the last uh, was the last team that I that I presenced a playoff game as a fan until you texted me a couple of weeks ago and said um, I booked pick, a flight. Hopefully, pick, you're around at one forty yeah. to pick me up. Yeah, pick me up so, at the airport, or else I'll take an Uber. So nice bookends there from Costa Cufas to this series, and from the last time I was I was in that arena for playoff action um, without a press pass around my neck. Um, it's fun. It's fun. Playoff games are fun and it's fun to get to experience them. Not on the clock. Um, yes, you're right. Let's talk about that. Um, so, so basically here's my intro to this last little segment we'll do. Um, armchair coaching is part of the, the sports fan experience. It's fun. It's mostly harmless. It's, it's whatever it's, it's part of, it's part of what you get by being a fan and purchasing tickets and wearing the jerseys and whatever. Um, there are a lot of very specific Quinn Snyder gripes right now. And, um, you know, I would say that have varying degrees of validity to them. So I thought we'd talk about two or three of them here, maybe, you know, five or six minutes each and see if we can figure out the degree to which on these, on these couple of items, Quinn Snyder should be looking himself in the mirror before game, games five and six and maybe seven, or if there's really just not a problem here and if fans should just like chill out and let it go and enjoy the ride. So the first thing is, is definitely the Rudy Gobert minutes thing. Um, Quinn talked about it in the post-game interview last night. Um, fans have been talking about it nonstop. Rudy Gobert has, has not played a lot of minutes in this series. He's averaging under 33 minutes um, per game. Last night, foul trouble compounded that a little bit, but, but that's kind of convenient too, because even, even in the games where he was in no kind of foul trouble, he just, he hasn't been playing the type of minutes that you expect a guy receiving MVP votes to play in the second round playoffs against another great team. Is that, is that fair? Uh, that's certainly fair. Yeah. In this series, 33, 36, 29, well, 30. Uh, and then 31 31. So right in the middle. So technically rounding up to 32 last night in game four. Yeah. Um, is this, is this a valid beef that, that fans have? Like should Rudy Gobert be playing? What, what's the right number for Rudy Gobert in the context of the series or, or does it vary from each of these four games the Jazz have played? Beef is a strong word. Um, and I'm not oh, going to go beef. 
And and Where I'm not going to go. No, no. I mean, for for me, I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Because right. you asked me, is this beef legitimate? I mean, I I'm not going to tell other people their beef is not legitimate. They, they, I guess they can have a beef if they want. So I, for me, beef is a strong word, and, and I'm not like somebody I saw today. I think I remember who it was, but I'm not going to say in case I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> who said? Who said um, it might be time to move on from Quinn Snyder? Oh, but, wow. But I absolutely think that Rudy Gobert should be playing 36 minutes as a floor, maybe 38 minutes and more when as needed. Um, and I know that everybody loves Derek Favors behind him. And, and, and I do believe, although the numbers don't always show that Derek Favors is improvement over uh, past backup centers. Uh, but I just feel like, Rudy's got to be out there more. That's what you do. I mean, you have you have bench to get through the regular season, and when it comes time that you need to win a game, which they now really need to win a game, you need to play your best player as much as you not not as much as you possibly can. Although tonight James Harden went forty six, Kevin Durant went forty eight, and they pretty much needed that. Yeah. Uh, James Harden was kind of playing a decoy. Uh, I mean, he he didn't have a, an incredible night box score wise, but um, they 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 needed 48 minutes and 49 points from KD to get that win. <laughs> I think for a variety of reasons, you need Rudy Gobert out there more than 31 and a half minutes last night, more than under 30 in Game Three. I don't have as big a beef with Games One and Two, 33, 36 minutes. <laughs> You know, that's at least one of those gets to what I said was my floor. But I think the last two games, I think part of the reason you're, you you know, let's keep him out there. And and that goes even when maybe he's not looking as effective as, as he wasn't part of the part of both games. So um, let me let me make your point for you and then let me poke some holes in it, because both of those are fun activities for me. Um the, the defensive efficiency so far in this series for the Jazz when Rudy Gobert is on the court is 111. When he's off the court, it's 145. And obviously that stat has a big fat arrow pointing at Derek Favors. And I think that that's a little unfair because, yeah. you know, for a number of reasons, starting with the fact that, like, look, the Jazz have a very specific rotation, specific guys play minute, you know, like Derek Favors plays most of his minutes with the same three to four teammates always on the court with him. And a lot of those guys are minus wing defenders. So you have Civ-like defense on the wing pointing ball handlers towards a not that great rim protector anymore. Um, So I don't think, I don't think it's all favors, but I do think that that, I do think that that makes the point of why Rudy, like, look, we, we as, people who cover and follow the jazz we scream all year long that that rudy's a top 10 top 10 impact guy that he should get mvp votes he did get mvp votes he like we talk about this impact okay if he's that impactful you um then yeah he he should be playing more like the minutes that a dame lillard gets or that a luka Doncic gets in the playoffs um now let me poke holes in it I'm not sure which game in this series the outcome flips if Rudy Gobert plays three more minutes than he did. Am I wrong? Uh, well, I'm going to first go to 
accuracy on that. He could have played six and a half more minutes in game three just to get to the floor and five four just to get to the floor. And that's the floor. So it's not th- we're not talking three minutes here. We're talking 29 minutes and 42 seconds in game three and 31 minutes and 31 seconds in game four. So there's a, there's a much wider gap that we're filling than three minutes. Okay, but that's to get to your sort of subjective floor. So I'm just I'm just trying to say, uh, okay. So if the Jazz, if the Jazz, if he should be at 36, let's say he should be at 36 for the series, he's averaging 33-ish. So I'm just trying to say, like, okay, you know, are there games? I mean, sure. Let's say five extra minutes. Are are there games that would be different if Rudy Gobert had played five extra minutes? Probably not those two games, but. If you don't pull out, I mean, so what we're what what we generally see, and this I don't think has moved a whole lot. We, we he sits for eight minutes a half. Yeah. Are those eight minutes? Well, that, and lately he hasn't been taking the second rest in the second half, um, in general. So, but in the first half, if you if you pull that eight down a little bit, does it make a difference? I don't know. I mean, the numbers seem to indicate that it could, but again. I mean, this is not all about Derek Favors. I know the other four guys on the court, but I think a part of it is really about um, the opponent's mindset and confidence. The second they see Derek Favors get up out of his seat and come to the come to the score, scorer's table, they know this is our opportunity. Now is when we attack the basket, and we probably do it successfully. And even if if Rudy's out with those same minus defenders, they don't have that attitude, and they don't say they don't go into attack mode. And I think that makes just as big a difference as as, as Derek Favors or Rudy Gobert is just them going at it and trying. We talk a lot, and I saw you tweeting it either late last night or this morning about Rudy noping people about people, I mean, including Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who take a swing into the lane and then turn right back around or pass the ball out or whatever. Um, sometimes that's for a good reason. Sometimes they're passing it out to a to a, to an open three-point three, three point shooter, but other times they're just like, uh, never mind, I'm not going to go this way. Yeah, um, yeah. And th- we get zero of that when, when Derek is in. So I think it's just as much about the opponent mindset. You know that when <clears> – <throat> I mean, they say it on the broadcast all the time. As soon as Rudy goes out, teams are going to start attacking the basket now. So I think that's just as much, you know, just the mindset of the other team. Um, even if Rudy's not on a particularly awesome game or half, like the first half in game four, it still is going to keep people, uh, keep, keep the offenses more conservative if he's in the game. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And look, I'm the guy who tweeted the nope reel at two in the morning last night. Yeah. Um, I'm the guy, like I have literally written the article saying like Rudy Gobert, not only should be the no brainer pick for DPOY, but he should, he should be on everybody's MVP MVP ballot. Um, He was on quite a few. That's good for Rudy. It, It illustrates what we're talking about, the impact that he has. I agree. I don't need convincing. I don't think Quinn Snyder needs convincing. I, I just, again, I look at these games and let's not forget that like in a few of these games, Rudy, Rudy had some adjusting to do on his own. Like yeah. in, 
in the first half of last night's game, actually, I'm going to look this up real fast because I want to make sure I don't screw up this point. So give me like 12 seconds to vamp and then I'll have it. In the first half of last night's game, Rudy's net rating was minus 69.9. And yes, there are problems with using net rating at even a single game level, let alone a half a game level. But right. guess what? That was worst on the team. So when you're, when no matter what combination is on the court, it's, it's worse with you. Like that was a game where Rudy wasn't at his most impactful for the first 20, 24 minutes. Um, he played 11 of those 24, meaning that there were 13 minutes when he wasn't there and the jazz played better in those 13 minutes. Um, game one was a little bit like that, by the way, that let's, let's remember that the Clippers led that game by 13. And part of the reason why they led is because, um, the Clips used DeMarcus Cousins, which was a bit of a surprise. And, and I don't know that Rudy was necessarily ready for Cousins specifically and Cousins punked him a little bit and sprinted the floor and got some easy buckets on him. So there, there have been games where I go, you know, okay. Yeah. Like by the time the game comes down to the close, Rudy's going to have figured some things out and he's going to be his usual impactful self, but like throw Rudy three more games in the first half of game one or the first half of last night's game. And I'm not, and I'm not sure you just made the task of winning any easier. Uh, if you did, it's, it's by a very little bit. Cause again, like the jazz, were just, the jazz were terrible in that first half last night. So I'm just, like, I get it, and I agree with you, and I agree with Aaron Hefner, and I agree with all these people who are out there saying that he should be playing superstar minutes because it's the playoffs, and that's what superstars do. And if Rudy is, you know, a, a, a borderline MVP candidate, that he should be getting those minutes. I get that, and I agree on a philosophical level. I'm just I, – I think that the fervor behind this one is a little bit overdone based on the fact that I, I don't think that it has – I don't think that the series count would be any different going into game five if Rudy Gobert had played more minutes. And the only time you could convince me otherwise is maybe, maybe, maybe in the third quarter of last night when the Jazz finally start to get some stops and they get as close as 14. And then Rudy checks out and right away it's back to 20. Yeah. That's the one example. But like it was still a double digit deficit against an elite team. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure I can convince myself that, um, that the Jazz will be 3-1 if Rudy were playing more in the series. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying about the two first halves, but I think I'd still probably, if I were betting, which is kind of what a coach does, I'd bet on the body of work versus two pretty poor first halves out of, what are we at now, 82 games-ish? Uh, I guess 81 games. Yeah. Well, which is, which is why, you know, in the second half, he played 20 and a half minutes out of 24 possible. Like Quinn didn't say like, Oh, I'm done with this punk. Uh, You know, I'm done with this bum. He just said, Oh wow. It's it's not working right now. He's in foul trouble. I'm going to try something else. It, It didn't particularly work either, but I'm just saying at least in the context of last night's first half, it's not like Rudy Gobert was, was getting them closer. Now, now, hey, maybe if he's out there, he he solves things a little earlier in the game, and the Jazz start their run earlier. And maybe you know, I don't know. Like I say, that's that's what we can all pretend to know. But there's butterfly effect to these things, and um, you know, we, right. we just don't know. 
Well, I said five minutes each, and we've just spent like yeah. 12 minutes talking about the Rudy Gobert minutes thing. There's also, yeah, yeah. Um, there's also some hand wringing about the back of the rotation. Um, you know, with, with Conley out, the Jazz are a little bit thinner at the back of their rotation. So we're seeing, you know, they're starting five, the guys that they usually start when Conley is out. That's Mitchell Gobert, uh, Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neal, Boyan Bogdanovich. Jordan Clarkson and Derek Favors are obviously playing big roles. And then after that, that means that George Niang kind of gets promoted to eighth man. He's usually the Jazz's ninth man. And then Mie Oni is seeing minutes when, you know, he was kind of in and out of the rotation in that 10th man role where, you know, over the course of the regular season, he pretty much only saw playing time when, um, you know, in times like right now, when a rotation player was hurt or in foul trouble and, and they needed to go 10 deep instead of nine deep. So I guess the question has been, and a, a lot of it has been focused on Niang, but we can talk about it with both Niang and Oni. You know, the question has been, why don't the Jazz have better options for those? Um, you know, what are, what are right now the eighth and ninth rotation spots? When Mike gets back, they'll be ninth and tenth. But, um, you know, why haven't the Jazz turned any of their other deep bench young guys into viable playoff options? Why were they not able to acquire a better deep bench performer or, or a break glass in case of emergency type option? You know, the, the Clippers have some guys like that. They have some Rajon Rondos and some DeMarcus Cousins who aren't necessarily part of their regular rotation, but they can play when they're needed. And, and that's given them the freedom to, to just show a little bit more variance in their lineups from one game to the next because they can – you know, they can mess around, they can go 12 deep and the jazz right now can barely go nine deep. So um, how, how worried are you like on a scale of, wow, George Niang shouldn't play another minute in this series to George Niang will be fine. And he's going to go for 15 tomorrow night. Where, where are you on this issue of just the jazz figuring out the back end of the rotation and, and whether George is, is good enough to rise to this moment in the jazz's playoff path. Um, I have started typing a tweet several times <laughs> during the games and I, and I stopped because I, partly because I didn't want to, you know, attack and partly because I just couldn't really word it right. But basically I just don't think George is really built for this series. I think the things he does well are pretty easily neutralized by this Clippers team. And the things that he does poorly are pretty easily exploited by this Clippers team. Um, I'm not saying they should play. I don't think you do that to a guy. And I think his minutes are already down. I mean, he was playing basically half games down the stretch. Now that was in the absence of both uh, Conley and Mitchell. So that was part of it. But he was playing 24, 23, 22, 23, 24. That sort of games until the last two, he finally dipped below last. He finally dipped below 19 in the regular season or below 20 right. minutes, sorry. And now he's playing in this series, 13, 9, 11, 13. I would look at a little lower than that and find a way to do it. Um, because like I said, I just don't think he is built for matching up against the guys that the Clippers play. Um, I, you know, the Kawhi's, the Paul George's, the Morris's, uh, who am I missing? Certainly not Zubats. Um, so it's just, it, 
I just don't think it's a good fit for him. Uh, and you know what? He hasn't hit a three. Oh, he hit one three in the first in the first game. Um, but he's just, I mean, he's not looking good all around. He's hit one shot in the, in the series out of nine attempts. So it's not high usage, but, um, oh no, that's threes. One out of nine from three, one out of 11 overall. I just don't think he's the answer. That said, I also have questions about the end of the bench. I've had them all year. There are people out there who say, oh, Joe Brantley is the, is the answer, I don't think I've ever seen that. I think he looks like an NBA player, and I think where that's from. But when he actually gets out on the court, I would just be scared to death to say, hey, go play against Kawhi and Paul George for three minutes and give us a break. I think I know who would break in that situation. Um, yeah. Well, even Oni, I mean, if we're honest, and, and, and I like Oni generally, like there have been times where Oni is guarding one of those two Clipper stars, and you can just tell that they're licking their chops, right? Um, Oni's smaller than those guys. He's skinnier. They can move him around. They can very easily get him on their backs. Like he's been, most of the time he has guarded one of those two guys, he's been chasing them, and that doesn't bode well for the rest of the Jazz offense. So, I, you know, yeah, it's just, look, it's, it's a tall order. And the fact that even Mie Oni is 0 for 4 from 3 in this series. So, like, if those guys are giving you a combined 1 for 13 – um, you know, look, that's, that's rough. Um, George Ng is minus 29 now in, yeah. in, uh, four games. So he's not playing a lot of minutes, but, but they're minutes that have, that have made it harder for the jazz to win. Mia only is, is only minus six, but that's in, in 24 minutes. So, you know, you're like in that one, you're talking about losing by a dozen points every time he plays a full game, right. From a ratio standpoint. So, right. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, like, I think you're dead on. I, I think that this says more about the Clippers than about either of those two guys. Um, I, I chuckle whenever the automatic answer of a portion of fans is, oh, well, if the ninth and 10th men on the Jazz's pecking order aren't getting it done, then definitely the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th men who have had all season to play their way in front of those dudes in practice and in games, they're going to suddenly be better, even though they've, even though they haven't been better for 80 games now. Like I, I think, I think the idea that a Jawan Morgan or, or a Jarrell Brantley or a Trent Forrest or, or frankly, even Urson, although you know, the Urson one is like, look, they kind of, they kind of got Urson for this reason. <laughs> so at a certain point, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him. But, you know, those other guys are guys who have been on this roster and have had a chance to, to fight their way up the proverbial food chain, and they haven't. And so if you're a coach, how do you, how do you say, like, how do you get guys to take your development program seriously if, if player X is kicking player Y's ass in practice, but you still give the second guy the minutes in an important playoff game like I do think that at some point development has to mean earning your opportunities. And, right. um, and I'm just not sure that any of those, any of those deep bench guys have done that even to the degree that Oni and Yang have. I mean, Yang, Yang was solid for most of the regular season. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, this is a, this is a tough matchup for him because it's a tough matchup for, you know, a lot of guys in the NBA. There's, they, they just have, 
They just have skill and shooting everywhere. And in a lot of these bench lineups, Niang is guarding Luke Kennard. That's just objectively, that's a bad defensive matchup for Niang. That's not his fault. It's just, it's, it's who's there that needs guarding when Niang is on the court in those lineups. It's, it's rough. Yeah. Oh, well, Niang was solid, not just in the regular season, in the first round of the playoffs. He was eight out of 20 from three. He played his role. He, you know, got out there and got after it. He had, uh, you know, well, his rebounding was up and down. I noticed the seven in the last in the final game and thought he rebounded really well. And then I see he had a couple of zeros. Now, I, I, you're preaching to the choir when people talk about they need to get into the games to prove themselves. I'm always I'm more of the school. You prove yourself in practice and then you get into a game. And if Quinn doesn't think that he sees these guys every day, if he doesn't right. think that they've earned a, a the nod to get in the game more than the guy who's in front of him in the rotation. I have to think he's right now. Have there been times ever where I've questioned that a little bit? The name Keith McLeod comes to mind. Um, <laughs> not, not as the decision maker as the decision. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, sure. I mean, I don't think coaches are infallible, but uh, you got to think that Quinn Snyder wants to put, out there, the guys he thinks give him his best chance. I think he's doing that. I just might reallocate a little differently within those guys. Um, but I think he kind of has the right thing. And what I was going to say before, I mean, yeah, when when you mentioned, uh, you know, trade season, whatever, yeah, I think that's when there was a missed opportunity. Maybe your son of you doing something besides warm up. Um, but I don't know that. I mean, so far that hasn't looked like the the best option to fill the 14th spot and i'm sure he's a swell guy but i you know i still don't understand the the matt thomas acquisition like that there just couldn't have been someone else out there who who could do what he does and be worth trading away a a second round pick for but you know that's who they have that's that's who you know the whole uh go with who bring you to the dance. That's who they have at the dance. So they, there's not going to be a personnel move at this point. They're just stuck with those 15, 17 guys. Well, which, which brings me to my last point I'll make about this and then we can move on to the last topic. And, I, and I'll, so I'll, I'll resist the temptation to go down the Matt Thomas rabbit hole and the Ursan Ilyasova rabbit hole. Um, other than just to say like, and I know you know this, so I'm more, when I say this, I'm responding to like, the people, the, yeah. the Twitters, like it's, it's not like, it's not like Dennis Lindsay had someone on the phone offering him PJ Tucker. And he said, no, I'll take Matt Thomas instead. Like no. the jazz tried to make a deal to get a difference maker. Um, that nothing was available given their asset situation and, and you know what they had available to offer. So instead they used that, second round pick to get a guy who they think might be you know a worthy medium term gamble as a as a prospect guy because he has an NBA skill I'm not like I'm not as mad about that as other people are because you know look you can't force other teams to trade you someone um but you said you said dance with the one who brung you and that just brings me back to this final point I'll make about just Quinn and who he is and how he philosophically approaches coaching and and why I think this is important so, like, what makes Quinn Quinn, what makes guys love him, what has made him so successful as jazz coach, 
boils down at least in part to the fact that his mentality is I'm going to trust who guys are. I'm going to believe in guys and who guys are. I'm not going to try to beat their bad tendencies out of them. I'm going to try to embrace and get behind who they are. And when they go through slumps, I'm going to believe in them and I'm going to hang with them. And he did that when Jordan Clarkson was slumping and he did that when Joe Ingles was slumping and he did that when Bogey was slumping. And guess what? All of those guys with the belief of their coach that came out of those slumps and the Jazz were better for it and the Jazz won 52 games in the regular season. They've won six and hopefully counting in the postseason. Like, because Quinn is that guy, because that's Quinn's belief and the way he approaches coaching. If you want him to suddenly, again, not talking to you, Kenneth, I'm talking to the people. If you want Quinn to suddenly become the kind of player who hangs over guys' shoulders and says, oh, if you dribble more than twice consecutively, I'm pulling you out of this game. You're asking him to be a different guy than the guy who has won 58 games for the Jazz so far. Um, and so I, so I just like, I would just say that as a blanket statement to anyone who's, who's sitting here trying to remodel the rotation because they don't like what George Ning is doing or they don't like what Oni is doing, or even because at times they haven't liked what they're seeing from Bogey. Like there were times this season when fans were literally saying, Bogey should be benched or Bogey should be fined if he dribbles the ball after catching on a catch and shoot. Like, no, Quinn wants those guys to play with a belief in themselves and they don't get that belief by feeling like there's an other shoe always about to drop. And, um, and just for better or worse, that's Quinn's philosophy. That's who he is. That's who he's going to be as a coach. If you're going to hire Quinn Snyder and keep him as the coach of your team, that's the philosophy that you're accepting. And, and, I, and I think that's the reason why he's not going to give up on George Neing right now. He, he might try something else for a few minutes here and there. He, he's, he doesn't have, he doesn't have a commitment to George Neing to play him X, X amount of minutes, but um, I just think, I just think people forget that like, we love that about Quinn all the other times. We love how he sticks with guys and believes in guys and brings out the best in guys. We can't not like it about him just because, you know, it's not fair weather at the particular moment. And I, and I, you know, again, I don't think the weather is that foul. I think they're two, two against a great team, which is about where they probably should be in this series if we're honest. So long rant, but I think important to say. Very well. Okay. Um, the last thing I got from jazz fans today when I tweeted out and just said, you know, what's, what's giving you a little bit of heartburn about Quinn's decision-making um, was just, I mean, I got a lot of really random things and some I laughed at and some were semi-valid and some were good points and good suggestions and whatever. But I think behind the Rudy minute thing and the kneeing thing, the next thing I heard was just about rigidity in general, or just the fact that, that the jazz know what they want to do, which is a good thing but then that that sometimes makes them too slow to react to something that's happening, whether it's, whether it's sub patterns or schemes or sets, just that there might be a, an overall sort of lack of flexibility. Do you think that's true? And, and, or I guess a better way of putting that, how, how much of a problem do you think that is as the jazz head into now a best of three series? Um, I mean, beyond the, not necessarily beyond and this gets back into exactly what we were just talking about, the, the, the sub patterns. I think you do most teams, most coaches will, will shorten their bench, shorten their rotations, if not the number of players, the number of minutes players are playing. 
And I just, I don't, I don't think we've seen that. I mean, we have a guy who plays who ideally would be playing 30 to 32 minutes a game and he's out and we still aren't, and we're, we're still not seeing any more minutes go to the top players on, on the team. And I, I obviously might come, these minutes aren't going to affect Rudy Gobert's minutes very much. Um, so I, I, I would love to see more flexibility on the sub patterns. I, we've seen a little of that because like I said, Rudy does generally not sit out that fourth quarter, four minutes, but Aside from that, I mean, I, I do think you're going to keep doing things basically how you've been doing them all year. But you also have to adjust to the fact that this team is now seeing you four times, seven times on the season, and they kind of know where you're headed. So, you, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look different the more repetitions they get defending it or, or trying to score against it, if we're talking For about sure. defense. Yeah. So it sounds it sounds generally like on all of these issues, you're a little bit more the fan views or with the or with the worries might be too strong a word, but like you you feel where these are coming from and and I'm more in the like I get it, but I feel like the histrionics are much because are a bit much because like you know, caveat here, caveat there. Um, on this one, like, look, I, I, I agree with you. I do think what happens a lot of times is, you know, fans say, oh, he, they, they're not adjusting anything. And then I go, well, yeah, you know, yeah, they are. Like in game three, they were defending this play this way. And in game four, they started defending it this way. And in the second half of game four, they tried this other thing and it worked really well. And fans go, oh, I didn't realize that. So, you know, it's easy to say he's not adjusting because of what's happening on the scoreboard, but the game is a lot more rich and layered than that. And um, so, I, you know, I do think Quinn is, from a tactical standpoint, always adjusting, always, um, you know, tinkering with coverages and things like that. Um, probably less so with rotations. And some of that is because he's got this unique thing where Rudy and either Mike or Joe – run the three stints together right mm -hmm. so that means because he runs this complicated pattern where he's basically got the starters and hybrid hybrid unit a and hybrid unit b if you're going to change one guy's minutes you're changing everything like that it, that impacts everyone and i think partially because of that he doesn't he doesn't depart from regular rotations as often as as maybe the playoffs might demand sometimes and again, a good example of that is when the Jazz are finally getting some momentum five minutes into that second half last night, and then Joe and Rudy check out and they lose anything that they had that they had going for them. So yeah, mm -hmm. you know, look, I I do get it. Yeah, then there have been a few, and there have been another minor change I saw that it's not a it's not a larger number of minutes. I'd have to look it up to see, but I mean, we have seen Niang out there with favors. For a limited number of minutes, which didn't used to happen. Rudy and George used to check in at the same time all the time. Right. And again, that's probably another reason why the the, the Rudy on-off numbers look so favorable <laughs> because now you've got now you've kind of the same wings out there that are minus defenders and George Niang and Derek Favors as the you know rim protector. And I'm kind of I'm doing air quotes not because I think Derek Favors can't protect the rim at all, but he's not a DPOY rim right. protector. Right. He's an anchor big. Time DPOY. Right. He's an anchor big favors is like he, like he plays the same 
spiritual role in the defense, but he doesn't yeah. do it at, at that same level. So no, I get what you're saying. And yeah, you're right. I mean, most of Favors' minutes, if you look through his specific lineups that he's played the most minutes with, almost all of his most common lineups have at least three of Donovan Mitchell, Jordan Clarkson, Boyan Bogdanovich, and George Niang in them. Um, those four guys, like I love them all for various reasons. They're all four on the, on the whole, they're minus defenders. And that's mostly who, who Derek favors is spending his time with. So, you know, I didn't, I know you weren't trying to make this a, a referendum on favors um, right. so much as just, again, getting to the, getting to the point of like, you know, is Quinn willing to try new stuff? And broadly thinking, I, broadly speaking, I think the answer is yes. I, I just think oftentimes it won't look like, it won't look in, in real life, what it looks like in fans' minds. Um, and so, you know, hey, sometimes we just have to remember that <laughs> he's the coach and we're not. And, <laughs> and you know, saying, saying he didn't make the adjustment I wanted him to make isn't the same thing as saying he's not making adjustments. I, I think he's, I think he is. He's trying, you know, I, that tweet thread from last night that you referenced, the, the nope reel of Rudy resulted from Quinn Snyder deciding that the way they were using Rudy defensively in the first half just wasn't going to work and that screw it. Like they're going to keep Rudy near the paint, even if that means just leaving a guy somewhere else, because that's where Rudy can impact the game the most. And, you know, it, it largely worked. Obviously, if you do that, you're, le- you're giving up something because against a great team, you always are choosing what you're willing to live with. But, uh, but, you know, back to the point, that was an adjustment. There have been other adjustments. It might not be the adjustment that, that this fan wanted to see or that this fan, you know, dreamt up in the middle of the night or that this fan thought of while sitting on the toilet or going on a run or whatever. But um, I, do, I do see Quinn trying things for, for whatever that's worth. Right. Yep. And hopefully tomorrow he's trying all the right things. And w- with – might come lineup that'd be swell. Yeah. I'd yeah. I'd be I'd be in favor of that change. And and maybe Donovan Mitchell will look more like Donovan Mitchell and you know and then a lot of this hand wringing will have just served as a little bit of a waste of breath for for the Clayton brothers here. Um well I'm glad we did this uh, largely because I was thinking about making this a really long and pedantic article and instead I got a chance to just talk through it with you. Um, maybe still being pedantic at times, but, but that wasn't my never, intention. Never, never, never. No, no. Um, well, before we go, just uh, any, any other broad thoughts? Like, is, I, I won't put you on the spot with for a prediction because I personally hate it when people put me on the spots for predictions. Um, but just any other broad thoughts on how you see the how you see the series potentially playing out from here? Obviously, tomorrow is you know, huge for both sides. Whoever, whoever wins tomorrow is suddenly the odds on favorite to, to advance. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would certainly like to think that, uh, and not just think, but semi, semi predict that the jazz would, you know, after losing two on the road, they come back to the, to the friendly confines of Vivint smart home arena and, get the win and then go back out on the road and let the chips fall and see, see if we have a game seven or not. I'm hopeful not for a game seven, to be honest, because <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'd rather have a game seven than lose the next two, but 
uh, jazz are getting that that thing I hate. And to be fair, I hated it when it didn't include the jazz uh, two weeks ago. Happening when it would have when it would have hurt the Mavericks against the Jazz. I hated it. I hate it when it happens every time that the Jazz, if if they if a team, let's see, well either way, if a, if somebody wins the series on Friday night, on Friday or, night, yeah, or if it's just these two same teams, and at one thirty uh, local time, Utah time, I think it is on Sunday. So you get that thirty six. It's really more like thirty. What is it? More like forty two hour. But that's yeah. tough when you're talking about a team that has one guy with a hamstring injury, one guy with an with an ankle. Although you know Kawhi tweaked something a little bit, so you know maybe it opportunity bad for everybody. But uh, I'm I'm not I wasn't a fan of that, but I should have expected it that that this series, either Game Seven or Game One, will be the Sunday ABC game. So it's going to be a I think what is it? It's 8 p.m. Saturday or Friday night, 1.30 on Sunday turnaround. Yeah, so it, so it could wind up being for whoever is the victor on Friday um, if they also win tomorrow. Congratulations, you have just beat a hell of an opponent. Now you have 42 hours to prepare for Chris Paul and Devin Booker and – you know, be ready to go Sunday afternoon. So, and, and, and even a, if it's not that, even if it's not that, and it's just Jazz Clippers game seven, my feeling is it hurts the Jazz a little more just on the just on the schedule perspective. That doesn't mean they're overall disadvantaged. I mean, it's still a home game. It's still you know maybe they have a full 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 team back, whatever, whatever. But the schedule portion of the matchup, that part probably hurts the turnaround. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I, you know, I still think the Jazz have um, – I think the Jazz are where they want to be. I think broadly speaking, if we zoom out and say, look, down an all-star and with another guy playing on one leg, yeah. they have, they've played to a draw with one of the best teams in basketball. Um, you know, by net rating and, and SRS and a bunch of different other macro metrics, you could, you could make the case that the Jazz and the Clippers are the two best teams left. And the fact that they are two and two is how it should be. And is the basketball universe working out properly um, from a, from a fan perspective, it's, it's awesome that, you know, from a basketball fan perspective, not a jazz fan perspective for a, from a jazz fan perspective, it induces a whole lot of anxiety and, and heart problems. But um, you know, this is sort of how this series should go. And when we talked before this series started about, how awesome a series it could be. It's, it's because we foresaw um, this kind of, this kind of parody, this kind of um, just two great teams not wanting to die. And we'll see who wants to die a little bit less tomorrow evening at 8 PM mountain time. And, and that'll go a long way to determining who wins this series. Mountain daylight time. Yeah. Mountain daylight. Sorry. The, the time zone snob had to be heard from there well i just because i i gotta make sure i i get i represent well with that uh we've gone over an hour which wasn't the goal but you know we talk a lot so we'll uh we'll give your ears a rest and let you get ready for game five uh this has been ken clayton over there and and i'm dan clayton we're part of the salt city hoops team and this has been another salt city hoops podcast thank you for listening Thank you.